0: Well oh, good morning again, everybody. Exactly uh, three months after leaving Egypt, uh, on that very day, uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they, they come to the desert of Sinai. They come to the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, the Israelites, they're going to actually be there for quite a long time. From a, from a time perspective, from a chronological perspective, it'll be 11 months and 20 days before they set out again. Just less than a year camped at Mount Sinai in southern central Sinai Peninsula. But, you know, from a literary perspective, that's ages away. In fact, we're going to be in the book of Numbers chapter 10 verse 11 before we set out from camp sinai in other words we're going to have to travel through 22 chapters of the book of exodus and then 27 chapters of the book of leviticus and then another nine and a half chapters of the book of numbers before we leave this place leaving literalistically speaking is 58 and a half chapters away In other words, a heck of a lot happens in this place. This is an incredibly significant place to the Israelites. And actually, at our current pace of moving through the Old Testament, it'll be spring 2022 before we get there. So I do suggest you read ahead. The point is that this place, Mount Sinai, at which they'll stay for 11 months and 20 days is tremendously significant to the neonate nation of Israel. And it all starts with the Lord calling Moses up to meet him at the top of Mount Sinai, and there God tells him what he is to say to the people. And if you'd like to read along, uh, we've gone back to page 59 Exodus chapter 19, verse 59, uh, page 59 in your pew Bible if you'd like to read along. Beginning at the third verse, God is speaking to Moses and God says, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. The the Israelites have experienced, have witnessed what Paul would later call the sternness and kindness of God. Now they have seen and ought to know that God has, on the one hand, the power to destroy, and on the other hand, the power to save. God has the power to judge and the grace to to forgive. They have witnessed the sternness of God to his enemies and the kindness of God to the objects of his grace. And they are therefore, having witnessed these things in their own lifetimes, in the last three months indeed, they are in a position to give what we would nowadays call informed consent. But what exactly are they being asked to agree to? What exactly are they being asked to agree with? Well, God continues, verse 5, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Um, these words might be a little bit mysterious uh, to, to, to some of us, but, but to the Hebrews, they, they would have actually already had a pretty good idea of what God was talking about. Because to begin with, the, the word covenant was an everyday word for them. It was it was a political word. Uh, Kings making treaties and agreements by way of a formal procedure which was called making a covenant or cutting a covenant because it often involved animal sacrifice. It was a political word. It was also a family word, covenant. Men and women made a covenant with each other when they got married. And there were many other applications of this particular form of contract as well. So what is a covenant? Well, a covenant creates a new relationship between two parties where there was no pre-existing relationship. A A covenant creates an everlasting relationship, one that will last for the lifetime of the parties. And just like a legal contract today, a covenant spells out how those two parties will behave towards each other, what the behavioral expectations are in the context of this ongoing, everlasting relationship. Covenants spell out the special benefits of the covenant to both parties when they meet these behavioral expectations, what might be called the fruit of the covenant or the blessings of the covenant. And covenants also spell out what will happen if one party misbehaves or if they fail to meet the behavioural expectations. Um, Misbehaviour doesn't break the covenant because, theoretically speaking, it is impossible to break a covenant. But misbehaviour will provoke penalties and consequences which might be called the curses of the covenant. So covenants are theoretically impossible to break, and I guess that's just a little bit like the speed limit, which is also theoretically impossible to break, and uh, that might be a comforting thought for you, and I do suggest that the next time a police officer pulls you over and says to you, you've just broken the speed limit, then I suggest you reply by saying, relax officer, the speed limit's doing just fine it's not broken at all. No, actually, the speed limit has just broken me. Because speed limits are put in place to stand the test of time. And so are covenants. So when God said the word covenant, what the Israelites would have thought about, what they would have assumed that God was speaking about, was the covenant that he'd already made with their ancestor Abraham some 500 years earlier. And they knew that God had made Abraham extraordinary promises. Reading from Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, they were the promises, but the covenant itself was made a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 17. God will be Abraham's God, and the God of his descendants keeping those promises. That's how he will behave. Abraham will walk before the Lord faithfully and blamelessly. That's his behavioral expectations. And the sign of the covenant, the rite of initiation into the covenant, was the sign of circumcision. Well, 500 years later, here now at Mount Sinai, this covenant with Abraham's descendants will receive an update. A covenant with the whole nation of Israel will be established. Sounds like a new covenant, but in reality, it is not a new covenant, but rather it is the covenant made with Abraham, formally remembered, and the terms of that covenant now unpacked. God elaborating on how he will keep his promises and God elaborating on how The whole nation is to walk before the Lord faithfully and blamelessly. What that will actually look like. It's going to take 11 months and 20 days for them to learn about that. Um, The the Israelites, of course, they already know that they are God's chosen people, God's special treasure. And as we shall see, this being God's treasured possession, it's, it's both a status and a calling. And that, that's important to point out because the word in the sentence that I've just read, the word if, can, can trouble us. It, it says, verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep the covenant. And it reads to us as though the covenant is conditional upon obedience. But actually that's not what is being said because they already understood covenants. The covenant is eternal and so belonging is unconditional. What is being said is that the blessings of the covenant, the calling, that is conditional. And it's conditional upon obedience. Uh, Unconditional status, but conditional calling. Um, Unconditional belonging, but... Their calling is conditional upon obedience. So what is the calling? Well, let's, let's continue reading Exodus 19, verse 5. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And, and that's an extraordinary sentence. I mean, with two phrases, God describes the calling, the ministry, the purpose of the nation of Israel. Two phrases, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They're extraordinary phrases, so let's unpack them. The first phrase, a kingdom of priests. Now, a priestly ministry, very generally speaking, a priestly ministry is any ministry which is about representing people in the presence of God. And two weeks ago, if you were here, you may remember, we looked at Exodus 18 and we read Jethro's advice to his son-in-law Moses, and actually it's on the same page of your pew Bible, so you can just look at the other page if you want to, We're in chapter 18, verse 19, chapter 18, verse 19, Jethro said to Moses, Moses, you must be the people's representative in the presence of God and bring their things to him. And as you may remember, we said this is the first act of leadership. The first act of Christian leadership is intercessory prayer. Moses, if you want to be a good leader of God's people, you must, as of the first priority, spend time with God in the presence of God, wherein you will bring the people's things before him. Intercessory prayer is the first act of Christian leadership. This is Moses' priestly ministry. Again, in very general terms, a priestly ministry is one where you represent people in the presence of God. And possibly, to our amazement, we now find here in Exodus 19 that that the ministry of Israel is just the same. It's a priestly ministry, and it's the, the first priority. This nation will represent others in the presence of God for God will dwell amongst them. The fir- this is staggering. The first priority of the Jews is to pray for Gentiles, just to put it bluntly. Again, that might surprise us, but it shouldn't surprise us. In the Bible, leadership is always for the sake of others. And self-interest, on the other hand, always disqualifies us from leadership in the Bible. So if if God has privileged us with some kind of responsibility or some kind of leadership, that is always naturally for the sake of others. The Jews should know that as God's special, privileged people, that is for the sake of others. Which others? The Gentiles. It's just obvious on the basis of first biblical principles. And so we have here on this day Israel being told that she occupies, she does occupy a special and unique position of leadership and privilege before God. What else could God have in mind that she serve the nations as a blessing to the nations, as priests? Which may mean many things, but it finds its perfect expression in representing the needs of the Gentiles in the presence of God. First duty of godly leadership. Pray for those you lead. Second, a holy nation. I hope you know what the word nation means, so we'll concentrate on holy, which is a confusing word, because actually holy means two different things, depending on whether it's said in reference to God or said in reference to things that aren't God. Um, We're going to talk about the meaning of the word holy in reference to God. We're going to do that next week. But for today, we're going to talk about the meaning of the word holy when it's used in reference to something other than God, because right here, it is used in in reference to something other than God. It's used in reference to a nation. What does the word holy mean? Well, it's a simple word in this context. It just means set apart for God's exclusive use. Whenever something is set apart for God's exclusive use, it is made holy or consecrated or sanctified. Those words all mean the same thing, just set apart for God's exclusive use. Um, We're in a building that was consecrated um, nearly 100 years ago. Um, 99 years and how many months, Helen? Yeah, nine months, eight months, whatever it is. This building is consecrated, in other words, with prayer and thanksgiving. It was set apart for God's exclusive use. And last week when uh, Ben taught us um, about Ephesus and he taught us about uh, Paul's letter to the, the young pastor of Ephesus, Timothy, um, Ben spoke to us a little bit about food, how all food is acceptable. Nothing, No food is to be rejected because God created all of it to be received with thanksgiving. Um, this is because uh, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if... It is received with thanksgiving, Paul writes, because, Paul writes, it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. So I guess um, here today, most of us would be familiar with um, saying grace or blessing the food before, before a meal. And, and what is it that we're doing when we do that? Well, what we're doing is we're praying a prayer of thanksgiving and consecration over the food. We're receiving it in the name of Jesus, and we're asking God to bless it. That is to say, we're asking God to make it fit for purpose. We're asking God to bless the food to our bodies, and that our bodies might be strengthened, and our bodies might be strengthened in God's service, because we ourselves are holy, we're consecrated, we've been set apart for, for, for God's exclusive use, so the food is as well. All of this to God's glory. The food is now holy. Although that doesn't mean that it has somehow been imbued with magical qualities. But rather just that we have set it apart for God's exclusive use. So, so the point of this is that consecration or making things holy, actually I hope you can see it's a, it's a mundane idea. We do it all the time. We can consecrate anything we want to as long as, firstly, we are serious about it. We we truly are dedicating it to God's exclusive use. And secondly, that it is something that really can be received with thanksgiving according to the word of God, the Bible. Um, Then it can be set apart for God's exclusive use. Uh, There are things in the Bible that are abomination. Anything that is abomination to God can never be consecrated because the word of God says this is never right. Um, But my point here is this. The entire nation of Israel is to be set apart for God's exclusive use among the other nations. In, In the presence of a world that belongs to God, Israel is to be set apart for God's exclusive use. And um, again, two weeks ago, we looked at what Jethro, um, Moses' father-in-law, had to say to his son-in-law. And the second piece of advice was this, Exodus eighteen twenty, Moses, you are to teach them God's decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. So that's, that's the second duty of Christian leadership. Teach your people. This is Moses' prophetic ministry. And in very general terms, a prophetic ministry is any ministry where you represent God in the presence of people. Um, I'm just at the moment doing prophetic ministry, but so momentarily a while ago was the music team doing prophetic ministry, any ministry that represents God in the presence of people. For Moses, this meant teaching the people about who God is as the creator of the heavens and the earth, what he's done, his saving works, his saving works as they reveal God's power and character, as well as, of course, teaching them God's laws, statutes, decrees, and commandments. So that was Moses' ministry. The surprise for today is that, that that's the whole nation's ministry. Just as Moses is doing that to Israel, so Israel is to do that too to the nation's a prophetic ministry. And as the Bible unfolds from this point on, we're going to see that this actually genuinely is God's purpose for Israel. Whether she likes it or not, she's there to show the world God and all who he is and all that he requires. And this being set apart for God, it's going to mean for the Jews, boy, they're going to have to live differently boy, they're going to have to obey very different rules flowing from a very different understanding of reality. These guys are going to be different. They're going to stand out. And in standing out, they're probably going to suffer the indignity of being misunderstood, of being ridiculed, of at times being hated and persecuted and even put to death. This is all part of the calling. But God intends them to have this prophetic ministry because this is going to change the world. Indeed, it's going to bless the world. Indeed, it's going to save the world. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation, priestly and prophetic ministry, leadership, servanthood. What was true about Moses, we now see is true for the whole nation. And as we've already heard uh, this morning, Moses, uh, what he did was he took these words back to the people and they all responded together, yes, we'll do this thing. And then Moses takes their answer back to the Lord. And thereafter, we read about some preparations for the third day, um, the third day when God will come down Then there's going to be fire and dense clouds of smoke, and then the Lord's going to speak to Moses in the hearing, in the hearing of the entire nation, just to make sure that they're absolutely on the same page and to make sure that the Israelites get it. God really is speaking to Moses. They can trust him as their leader. And in preparation for this extraordinary, cosmically extraordinary thing, God coming down, speaking in the the hearing of, of, of these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Well, the Hebrews are to consecrate themselves. They're to make themselves holy. They're to prepare for, for being set apart for God's exclusive use. And the Israelites did this, as we read. They, they did this by washing their clothes. I'm not sure what that means exactly. I suppose that this figuratively demonstrates their readiness to change. Um, changing clothing in the Bible is a metaphor for changing behavior quite often. Um, they, the people also did this by abstaining from having sex, and um, sex can, of, of course, be received with thanksgiving because God created it, and it is good, and it is consecrated uh, by the word of God and by prayer, which is to say that sex is the blessing of or the fruit of the marriage covenant. Um, it's received with thanksgiving and with prayer. Um, I I point this out because because we might, from a certain perspective, think that they're stopping from having sex because there's something wrong with sex and it's naughty and bad and you shouldn't do it in God's presence. That's actually not what's being said at all. Um, Rather, just pointing out the fact that to the Hebrews and in the Bible, there is validity in the idea of abstaining from good things, such as food and drink and sex, for a limited time in order to uh, concentrate totally on God. And that's what they're doing, and Moses, what he's doing, well, he's preparing for the third day by erecting crowd control measures all around the mountain. And these measures are necessary because God is holy. And what does that mean? Well, I'll talk about that next week. Um, but but for us today, thinking about these first 15 verses, for us as Christians, um, what does it mean? Well, of course we remember that we also belong to God by way of a covenant. In a sense it's actually the same covenant. It's it's all the same covenant. God's promises made to Abraham signed, sealed and delivered through Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God. In in a real sense it's the same covenant. But of course in a different sense it's a different covenant, it's a new covenant because it's been upgraded since Sinai. With respect to our covenant, it has different behavioral expectations of the two parties. And there are different blessings that flow from our covenant, Uh, um, eternal blessings. But what is similar is that we too collectively and individually, we are called, as, as Yvonne read to us from, from Peter's letter to the, to the churches, we're called to be also likewise a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And um, let's look at this. Would you please turn with me in your pew Bible to page 981, 1st Peter chapter 2, verse 4, page 981. Peter writes, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, in other words, as you come to Jesus, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house in order to be a holy priesthood. What does it mean to be a holy priesthood? If that's our calling, what will it look like? Well, Peter explains, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Where do you offer sacrifices? You offer sacrifices in the presence of God. What do we offer, seeing as the sacrifice has been made? What do we offer? We offer prayer. That's what we offer in the presence of God. The first task of Christian leadership collectively and individually is intercessory prayer. And I'm going to say more about this in a minute. But it, just to conclude with Peter if, if if we have a priestly role do we have a prophetic role? Well let's look down to verse 9. In verse 9 it says, "But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession." that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Well, yes, we have a prophetic ministry. We are called to represent God in the presence of people. How? Well, by telling people all about Jesus, by by telling others all about who he is and what he's done and, and how wonderful it is to be with him. Now, would you turn back with me just a few pages in your Pew Bible to page 960, to page 960. We're going to look again at 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. Paul is writing to his young friend Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, this whole letter is all about how people should conduct themselves in public worship. And Paul writes, "I urge then First of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Well, isn't that interesting? Paul urges, he exhorts, he begs, first of all, first of all. I don't think that means temporarily in terms of time. I don't think it means that it's the first thing you do at the start of the service. I don't think it has to be at the beginning of the service, rather I think Paul is saying, This is of first importance. This is the primary reason you guys get together. What is the primary reason you get together? The primary reason you get together is is to is in the presence of God to offer petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings for all people, for kings and all those in authority, in order that everybody might live in peace. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, we've each got lots of different reasons why we think church is important, and oh, we come to church in order to, dot, dot, dot. And many of those things are right and good. But here's Paul telling us that first of all, our first priority when we come together is to be a blessing to the nations. Surprise, surprise, have we heard that before? It's to pray for those on the outside that they might live in peace. That's our, first, that's our primary calling when we come together. Let's read on, verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So there we have it. Individually and collectively, we are priests and Prophets, all of us in Jesus, we are God's treasured possession. Extraordinary privilege, astounding privilege. But it's always for the sake of others. It's a calling, a a royal priesthood called to represent the nations in the presence of God. And we are a holy nation. When we get out there, we are called to tell the world about Jesus, what he's done and how wonderful it is to know him and follow him. Priests and prophets, the Lord be with you.